Well, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from Redeemer Fellowship Church in Watertown, Mass. We are grateful for you as a church and uh, been praying for you and grateful for the opportunity to be here. What a blessing the last couple of days were at the, the men's retreat in uh, Milford. That was just that was a good time, good fellowship and conversation and lots of encouragement. So you come to one of these things and you hope to be a blessing to others and then you end up walking away from it saying, oh, the Lord has been so kind because I feel refreshed, I feel encouraged and I feel blessed. And so even coming here this morning to, to pray and hear the word of God read and sing together and to hear your voices united together in, in praise of Christ is so refreshing and so encouraging. So what a, what a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to open up God's Word from uh, Mark chapter 14 this morning. It was just read a few moments ago. And this is interesting as a, as a passage. It's incidentally one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, it is one that, that Jesus says that it needs to be remembered. He concludes the passage and says that this is something that needs to be talked about whenever the gospel is preached. So that should cause us to think that this, this something happens here in this passage that Jesus thinks is so noteworthy it needs to be remembered and talked about in churches and whenever people talk about the gospel. Uh, the second thing, just by way of context, since we're jumping right in here before I pray and we get started, is that this is the, the Passion Week. So the book of Mark is interesting. The first 10 chapters of Mark uh, really, the three years of Jesus' life. And then chapter 11 pivots to the last week of Jesus' life. And here we are in chapter 14, and we're on Wednesday, two days before Passover, or two days before Jesus will be crucified on the cross. So if you just kind of get your bearings for the passage that we're in, Passion Week, Jesus is going to be crucified. And that... That raises the ante for what's happening in this passage and kind of gives it some significance even beyond what we might see at first glance. So with that, let me pray, ask the Lord's blessing, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it is true and it is good. And we pray this morning that as we read it, think about it, consider it together, that this living word would speak to us, not just in our minds, but, but in our, the core of our being, in our very hearts and our souls. Lord, shape us, make us, remake us to be people who delight in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. I think the main point that We'll see from the passage this morning. Hopefully, I'm able to persuade you that this is the main point. This is what I want to get across to you this morning. Is that Jesus deserves and delights in your devotion. Jesus deserves and delights in our genuine devotion. And so we'll see that as we work through this passage. In verses 1 through 3, we see this, or actually in verse 3, this pouring out, and then in verses 4 through 5, boiling up, and then 6 through 9, delighting in. All of this serving, this reality of seeing that Jesus both deserves and delights in genuine devotion. And we see this starting off right away in verse 3. You see that he is, 
So we just walk through this passage. He's at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, this person who was formerly a leper. Now he's not a leper. We don't know if Jesus healed him or not. Perhaps he did. But at any rate, he is, he's having a, a meal there at this house. And as they're there having this meal, and Matthew 26 tells us that the disciples are there, and they're all gathered around in this scene. And at this point when they, they're, they're having this meal, a, a woman comes in. And so just to kind of see the, the, the reality of what would be going on, like historically, it's a little bit different than our housing situations today. I can imagine it's, it's different than where, where you live and the way things work as far as people coming in and out the door. But in this time period, uh, they would often keep the door open and it would open up right to the street. And the way that they would eat, they would recline and their feet would go away from, away from the table like that. And so it was frequent. People might walk by and the door would be open. They might just pop their head in and look. Maybe they stay. Maybe they'd be welcomed in. But in this case, we see that this, this woman comes in and she just makes her way right in. Uh, it wouldn't have been completely scandalous for her to do this, but it certainly would have got everybody's attention that this woman has come in off the street. We don't know much about her in this scene, but Mark wants us to know that she's come in, but she has something with her. As they're all eating, she comes in, and it says that she had an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And so this this is what, what she has, and we're not, we're not sure exactly what the, the flask looked like. Maybe it was um, fused glass, or maybe it was something with a lid on it. But the, the container is not as important as what's in the container. Uh, we see that this is pure nod, very costly. So it's, it's some type of perfume. It's an ointment. It's an oil. And we're to understand this is a very costly oil. So this is not some, some cheap stuff you might pick up at Target to try to just make you, make you smell okay or whatever. Now, this is like the expensive stuff. This is the good stuff. Uh, we know it's costly because the disciples were quick to, to figure out how much it cost. And they actually tell us in the passage so that we can understand it's, uh, It says that it would have been sold for more than 300 denarii. So they add up that, that amount, that 300 denarii. That's, that's basically a year's wage. So this is not like twelve ninety nine cologne, right? This is a year's wage. So depending upon the time, right? Year's wage commensurate with the time, and so if it's you know fifty, sixty thousand dollars, whatever the year's wage, the average is um, for Englewood, New Jersey. Just put that figure in your mind. Uh, this is what she's carrying with her. It could have been an heirloom. It could have been something that was passed down to her. Uh, it could have been her husband's that he gave to her and then he died or something like that. Or it could have been, there's all kinds of speculation of what this might have been. But suffice it to say, she had something very valuable. Uh, this was basically her retirement account. It's everything she had. And it's in this little flask. And she comes walking into this house, this dinner party, and she does something very shocking. It says in verse 3, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So she, she, she smashes it. Literally, the, the breaking is not like this little gentle kind of like, let's preserve it. It's, it's a smashing. And then she takes the contents of it and she dumps it 
over Jesus' head. I, I, I'm thinking kind of like Gatorade bath celebration. Like we're taking it all. We're not, this isn't like a little dab will do you, just a little bit behind their ear or something like that. This is take everything in the flask and dump it on his head. So much so that it's going through his hair and all over him. A couple things that we notice about her as she does this is that she has humility. She, she doesn't fear man. No doubt walking into this room with these, these guys, these disciples, and perhaps other people, certainly um, the, the former leper, Simon, and other people that might have been there looking down their nose at her, whatever her past was, we don't know. But she goes in and she doesn't care. She's single-minded devotion to Jesus. She has no fear. And because she has no fear of man, it demonstrates that she fears God. So that means she's humble. So this sacrifice that she makes, this service that she offers, is a humble service. But not only that, did you notice that it's a quiet service? The only audible noise that you would hear in this passage is her breaking the flask. She doesn't say a word. She's silent. Her deeds do the talking. We don't even get her name. She's a no-name, silent servant. I think that's something. She quietly brings this in and takes all that she has and gives it. It's, it's also lavish. She doesn't spare anything or hold it back. She broke it and she poured it over his entire head. Not a couple drops. It's a liberal use of this nod, this very costly ointment. It's to demonstrate her affectionate love for Christ. She's serving Him. I think we could say accurately that according to this woman, that nothing is too valuable for Jesus. Nothing is too costly for Jesus. Nothing would be saying, that's overdoing it. Because she basically overdoes it here. And it's perfectly acceptable in her mind. So we see herself pouring out in many ways. The flask and the oil being poured out is symbolic or reflective of her pouring herself out in service of Jesus. A fragrant offering to her Lord. So she's pouring out, but then there's also boiling up. Boiling up. We see this in verses 4 through 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. So they're indignant. They're angry. It's the same word indignant that's used uh, earlier in the Gospels when the disciples are arguing with one another about who's the greatest and then they become angry with each other because maybe they didn't think of this argument to get in on it. Who knows? But what ends up happening is that their pride is the center of it and it's the jealousy bubbles up and they get angry. They actually are saying it to themselves. Why was the ointment wasted? And, and so often our pride, particularly religious pride, gets a, a veneer of nobility attached to it, doesn't it? 
Why was this wasted? This could have been sold and given to the poor. There was a better use for this. And looking at what, what she did and saying, this could have been given to the poor. And they're, they're decrying this work that she has done. Basically, they're saying to her, this, this is a little extreme. You didn't have to do this. You, you could have done better doing this. You shouldn't have done this. And I find it interesting that maybe if, if she was a little more moderate and given a little bit of perfume, a little bit of oil to Jesus, and then given the rest to the poor, they, they probably would have thought that was acceptable. Because moderate religion is always okay. It's the full-souled commitment to God that gets you in trouble. The world never has a problem with moderation of Jesus, moderation of religion. It's just you can't go to extremes. But I think it's interesting. I think the world's got it completely backwards. Because the world loves extremes. Man, they love it when you like, are really into fitness and you go crazy with your fitness. They love it when you work hard and make money. Celebrate that. They love it when you're dedicated to your craft and learning, education. Just, just fill in the blank. It's fitness, work, money, whatever. Just, just know Jesus. Don't you dare go overboard with him. Because if you do, then the relatives are going to start giving you the side eye, the glance, they're going to start hush-hush. They're going to start talking about you. The co-workers are going to think you've gone off the deep end. But they got it completely wrong, don't they? It's actually moderation in things of the world that are actually good. But when it comes to Jesus, you, you cannot go overboard. Your devotion to Jesus Christ is actually, we cannot do enough. But they had it flipped. And so does the world. And so just by way of correction and encouragement to you this morning, if you begin to feel the pressure of the world, and maybe even the pressure of your own heart as a disciple of Christ, it's looking at the same, maybe I should ease back on the throttle of devotion to Jesus. No, don't. Don't ease back. We learn from this picture here in this passage is that Jesus deserves your genuine devotion. Even if they think it's overboard, he doesn't. I think it's also a warning because these are disciples in the, Jesus' disciples, it's not the first time they get angry about things like this, but we can in the church sometimes get a little bit frustrated with other people's devotion, can't we? Okay, maybe it's just me. You all look shocked that I would say such a thing. Somebody's zealously serving the Lord and, and we see them and we think, oh, why don't you just tone it down? And suddenly there's this statement made that cuts them down to size when they're down to our level. Because we just don't want anyone out serving us, out devoting us, out learning us, out preaching us, out whatever us. We like it all kind of everyone's even. And maybe us just a smidge taller. I think this reminds us that sometimes people will surprise us with their devotion to Jesus. And instead of reacting indignantly like these disciples and these here, actually the right response is to say, praise God. Look at this. Somebody who says that actually encourages me to do the same thing. There's also kind of a stinger in the tail of this passage. These that are sitting there, that are thinking in their own mind, not actually saying this, but saying to themselves, 
Why was the ointment wasted like this? They're not just discouraging the service. What are they doing? They're devaluing Jesus. Why was this ointment wasted like this? Wasted. Why, why do you waste your ointment? Why do you waste your money? Why do you waste your time? Why do you waste your energy? Why do you waste your resources? Why do you, why do you go to church every Sunday? Why do you go to these Bible studies? Why do you spend time praying? Why do you spend time in the Word of God? Why do you spend time trying to persuade unbelievers of the gospel? You could be doing so much more with your life. Why are you wasting your life? That's not what we're doing at all. We're serving the one who's worthy of that devotion. It's actually the lesson from the passage is not that we're wasting our life, but this is real life. He deserves it. He actually is the one whom you can't overdo your devotion to. And so there's this boiling up animosity by the disciples and those present. This is pouring out by the woman. And there's also this, what I think is so sweet, the delighting in by our Savior. Notice how Jesus responds. What does Jesus think about the devotion? Verses 6 through 9. Well, first thing he does is, is he defends her. Look at verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Get off her back. What's your deal? Leave her alone. He, he is one who takes a lot of abuse for people unrightly. Right? People attack him. They mock him. They say things that aren't true. And so often he doesn't defend himself. But here this disciple, this woman... And she is in the crosshairs of, of ridicule and anger. And, and Jesus looks at these people that are attacking her, and he says, leave her alone. I love that picture. It reminds me of how Jesus would defend us according to the accusations of the evil one on the last day and every day. As we're accused by Satan, our enemy, leave him alone. Leave her alone. They're mine. And then he asks a question. Why do you trouble her? Why, why are you troubling her? Why, why are you giving her a hard time? Let her be. Notice they haven't spoken either. They're just thinking to themselves. He's reading their mind again. And then he offers his commentary. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. She's done a beautiful thing. He delights in what she's done. He, his appraisal of what this is is not that this was wasteful, but this is wonderful. It's a beautiful thing. And then he goes on to, to, to make the point a little bit further. He says, For you always, verse 7, have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. So you can always help the poor, but this is a big week. I'm, I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to be gone. I'm going to go to my father. And he says, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So why is it beautiful? 
Why does Jesus say this is a beautiful thing? Why does he say this is, this is something that should be noted? Well, I mean, he, he sees her intentionality of what she's doing. She comes to him. She walks right in. She does that. But he also, he affirms her service. Notice what he says. He says, she has done what she could, verse 8. He looks at her, her sacrifice. He looks at her service. And he says, she's done what she could. And it's not just because she gave a lot of money to, to say that a big financial sacrifice. Because Jesus is not actually concerned primarily with the, the magnitude of the gift. He's happy to, to look at the widow in chapter 12, verse 40, 41, who at the end of her life shuffles over to the offering bo box and puts in basically two pennies. That's all she has. And he looks at that and says, this lady gives more than them. And then he comes over here to this place where the person is pouring out their life savings. And he says, this is it. So it's not about the money. He's not after, after the money, whether it's small or great. He's after the heart. And when he looks at what she's done, he says she's done what she could. He sees her stewarding her opportunities and her resources. She's done what she can. But he also says it's beautiful because he elevates her service. Notice what else he says. He's, he's going to interpret what's going on here. He says in verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. He's, he's making a connection here that he's getting ready to die in just two days, day and a half. He's going to be crucified. And Jesus interprets what she's doing to him, what she's doing for him is preparation for his death and burial. He elevates what she's doing and he's saying, look, what she's actually doing here is she's preparing me to die. Just as in the ancient culture, they would, when somebody would die, they would anoint their body for burial because of their, the views on the, the afterlife. Here is this woman coming and anointing Jesus for his death and his burial. So he's actually saying, though she's said nothing, her mind is thinking about the cross. She has her mind on the cross and his death. In other words, you disciples who don't seem to get it and understand that I'm going to the cross, she does. She gets it. And she sees me suffering upon the cross, and she looks upon that, and she loves that. And she says, this cross-bearing Savior is the one whom I'm going to pour everything out for. And so he elevates her service even to this anointing of the body before burial. And then he memorializes her. He, he, he frames the story. It's like he puts a, a frame around this story and says, I'm going to hang this picture of this woman pouring out her everything for me. I want to frame it up and I want to hang this in the, the gospel narrative halls so that people will come and look and say, well, that is just beautiful. Look at that. That's what service looks like. He says, I truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is preached, wherever the gospel is preached and proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. He looks at her works and he says, this is, 
this is good. It's beautiful. She's done what she can. You know, sometimes, I don't know, I, I haven't necessarily picked this up this weekend with the guys and talking with them, but it, I'm sure it, it, it bubbles up in churches like yours. I know I've seen it in many churches. I've seen it in our own churches. When we, we emphasize God's sovereignty and the, the reality that we were dead sinners and God, through His grace, brought them, us to Himself. And we realize that apart from Christ, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do to to earn God's favor. There's nothing we can do to keep God's favor. And we remember verses like Isaiah 64, that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God, like our best is not very good. In fact, it's un not pleasing to God. And that's so true as a non-Christian, that, that is true. But sometimes we could even begin thinking that as Christians, actually, our best deeds are not pleasing to God either. Like we can't do anything. Like this is no, matter, no matter what we do, any of the service that we do, it just doesn't count. It just stinks. It's filthy. It's bad. And God's not pleased. I think this passage teaches us something different. It kind of reminds me of, of, as a dad, I think of one of my sons who, I don't know if all sons are like this, but our three sons are like this, that they, you tell them to clean their room, and I, I don't even know, does it even look like they did anything? Like you've been in there for two hours, what did you do? You go in your sister's room, it looks like a Pottery Barn <laughs> magazine. I, don't, I have no idea. Um, so you go in the room and you look, and he's, I think of my son, Bo, and he says, you know, this is like five years ago, he says, Daddy, I clean my room. And I look at it, and I'm like, okay looking around, and I see, I noticed he pulled the covers on his bed. He actually pulled them up to the pillow, and he put a stuffed animal right in front of it. And he took all of his dirty clothes and put them under the bed. So he tried. He put his Legos away. Like, he moved stuff around. And I'm like, okay. And I looked at him, and, and what did I say? Are you kidding me? Look at this room. This is horrible. I mean, you, you call that a made bed. Where's the hospital corners? Tuck it in. Make it right. Stuff's under the bed. Put the Legos. Everything's out of order. There's no symmetry here. Did you even dust? No, I didn't say anything like that. I looked at him and said, son, great job. I could really see you were trying to please mom and dad. You did the best you could. You did a beautiful thing. You did it. And I think that sometimes, brothers and sisters, we think about the work we do to serve the Lord, and we think that God might look at it like the first reaction, like, oh, come on, that's the best you can do. What's wrong with you? Why can't you be like him or like her? When he's actually looking at you through the eyes of love like this woman and saying, ah, you've done what you could. You've done a beautiful thing. He actually takes pleasure in our service. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that God has prepared works beforehand that we would walk in them. And He delights in us doing the work that serves Him. And He's pleased by it. So I just want to encourage you that your service to God is actually pleasing to Him when it's genuine. He delights in it. Let that encourage you. This woman got it. Why did she get it? Well, I think she got it 
because she actually reflects Jesus' service to his people. I think she's like right at the heart. She's like right at the center of Christ's heart for his people because what's going to happen in two days? Jesus is going to pour himself out in service of God and us. I mean, when, you, when you look at the, the, the ointment, the, the oil, the perfume, it's like, it's like a little kid making a, a mud pie for, for, for their parents. It's like, this is just oil. He's the king of the universe. He, he has an infinite supply of oil. But she poured out all she had. And Jesus is going to go to the cross. And, and what is he going to do? He's going to pour out. He's going to give all that he has. His life. And he's going to do it in service of God and for love of his people. He's actually going to, he's going to be breaking the flask, if you will. Smashing his body. So that he could pour out himself in devotion to God and in service of his people. And he's going to do a beautiful thing. And he is going to give all that he has. And so when Jesus looks at this woman and he sees her giving all that she has in costly devotion to him, preparing for burial and pouring out herself in service of Jesus, he looks at it and says, this is beautiful because it looks like the gospel. It looks like the cross. So Jesus not only deserves this devotion, he's infinitely worthy, but he delights in genuine devotion. And so brothers and sisters this morning, I just want to remind you that this is the heart of Christ towards his people. He says, frame it up. Hanging in the halls of the church. Look at this woman's service. And do likewise. Be encouraged with your Savior's heart for his people. And be encouraged, be reminded of the one who poured himself out so that sinners like us can be forgiven. And if you're not yet a Christian... See that this is the heart of Christ, that he would welcome unbelievers to himself, receiving you to himself, forgiving your sin. If you would believe in him, he would give you all of the blessings of forgiveness of sins, and he will love and defend you even right to the end. So look at this Jesus, the one who poured it all out for us. And let's do the same for him, for he's worthy. Let's pray. Our Father... It's our prayer today that this passage that Jesus wants his people to remember would be remembered by us, but not just in our minds and on the page in front of us, but also emulated in service. For in so emulating this nameless woman with her dedication and devotion to Jesus, we see a picture of the gospel. And we ask that we would do the same as we serve him faithfully. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray that you would tend to it and care for it. And even as they search for a pastor, Lord, I pray that you would give them contentment in you. And that they would be reminded that the good shepherd tends to his people. He is the one who 
loves the flock and cares for the flock and numbers the flock and protects the flock. And he's with his people. So may they be encouraged by the good shepherd's care for them. Even as they continue to look for a, a senior pastor. And Lord, we pray you would give them wisdom in that. Give this church unity in Christ. Joy in Jesus. May the gospel go forth from this place. Both in declaration of the word and demonstration of their lives. That Jesus Christ would be glorified. We pray in the name of our matchless Savior, even Jesus.